0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, Looking at 1 Corinthians 13, those of you who uh, haven't been with us, I've already met a few first-time visitors today. Thank you so much for being here. We are going through the book of 1 Corinthians the way that the Apostle Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago. He wrote it as a personal letter to a church that he planted and started, that he pastored for about a year and a half. And then he went away, and after about two years, that church began to grow. But they also had challenges as they were growing, and so he had some correspondence and continual communication with them. And as a leader and former pastor and as apostle, uh, he needed to give them more of God's direction and divine revelation. So he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, in, in our English Bibles. It's 16 chapters long. Most of those 16 chapters are corrective, in nature, Paul is addressing their problems, and they had problems. Christians have problems because Christians are humans. Humans have problems because we're fallen, finite, uh, short sighted, live in a cursed world. And so uh, Paul is writing to encourage them, but also to correct them. And we've been, there's a few main issues that he wanted to address. One of those issues is how they were functioning in the church with respect to spiritual gifts that God had given them. And they began to view their spiritual gifts that God gave them in a wrong way, in a self-centered manner, and actually began using their gifts with wrong attitudes in a competitive nature. And it began to actually create division and disunity in the church, which is the exact opposite of God's intention of what he wants us to do with our spiritual gifts. And so there's a big chunk of this epistle, chapter 12, 13, and 14. It all goes together. It's one theme, one argument, one topic, and Paul is addressing the issue of spiritual gifts in 12, 13, and 14. We addressed chapter 12, Uh, now he transitions to chapter 13, and he'll conclude in chapter 14. Chapter 13, historically, we're looking at it, but historically it's known as the chapter of love, of biblical love. It's actually one of the uh, greatest delineations of love from God's point of view, if not the greatest, and has been recognized accordingly by many for 2,000 years since the time that the Apostle Paul penned it. You'll frequently hear it read at weddings, or maybe you'll see it hanging on a wall in a Christian home. I think it's hanging on a wall in our home, uh, which is fine and appropriate, but what we need to be reminded of today is when Paul wrote this, he didn't write chapter 13 on love isolated all by itself. It needs to be understood in its proper context, and that's where it has its fullest meaning. And again, the topic of the conversation is disunity in a local church among fellow believers. Disunity, arrogance, competitive spirit, divisive spirit, schisms, pride. What's the solution to all of those things? Paul, his argument is the only solution really is biblical love. God-ordained love. And so the the very deep problems addressed in chapter 12, the resolution is in chapter 13. Love. God's love is the only thing that can really resolve these issues in relationships on an individual level and also corporately in a church. And so naturally that's why chapter 13 flows from chapter 12. They go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, as Paul is addressing the spiritual gifts in 12, 13, and 14, if you wanted to do a basic outline of Paul's points of emphasis, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the purpose of gifts. Chapter 13 is the power of gifts. In other words, what is the motive we should have when we exercise our gifts? And what is the supernatural energy by which we should exercise our gifts? It is the love of God. So the purpose of gifts in chapter 12, the power of the gifts in chapter 13, and then the practice of the gifts in chapter 14. And we'll see Paul's going to get to that. So, um, let's go ahead and look at chapter 13. Today we're just going to deal with the prologue of Paul's delineation of biblical love. And that's verses 1 through 3. There's kind of three natural parts to this chapter. And we're going to deal with just the prologue introducing the concept of love in relation to spiritual gifts. Let me read and you follow along. Uh, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. For your outline there, this kind of comes naturally. Paul, uh, I, I got three points in my outline there. And these were given by Paul, each one is in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, where Paul's making one argument. And he's following up on a statement that he concluded with in chapter 12, verse 31, where he concludes that chapter saying, and exhorting the Corinthians, you have the wrong view of spiritual gifts, you've been arrogant, self-centered, condescending, divisive, creating disunity, using your gifts wrong. Not being other-oriented and serving others when you use your gifts. You need to des- des- desire and pursue the proper greater gifts. And then he concludes by saying this, and I will show you a more excellent way. What was he talking about? I will show you a more excellent way, a better way. What is a better way? Uh, a better way to behave. In utilizing your spiritual gifts, and the better way, the higher way, the superior God ordained way is using your gifts motivated by the power of love. That's going to be that is the more excellent way. And Paul personalizes personalizes it, and he says, "I will show you. I'm going to give you an example of a greater way of how to behave in the church. I'm going to give you an example and an illustration from my own personal life of having the proper attitude." of exercising your spiritual gifts. So what Paul does in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, he uses himself as the example. Here's an illustration. You're behaving like this, don't do that. In verses 1 through 3 he says, behave like this, use your spiritual gifts like this. And he refers to himself as an apostle. As the example and model to follow. Paul repeats that idea or notion a couple of times. In his epistles where he says be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. Paul was not being arrogant. All he was saying is that he was an apostle ordained by God, given the spirit of God, gifted by God, called by God. And Paul was faithful and obedient to his call as an apostle. And he lived among the saints. He lived among the Christians. He was exemplary in his Christian life. He was a sinner, but he was exemplary in his Christian life. And he was indeed a legitimate godly model to to follow in the daily Christian life. Because he was obedient. He was dependent upon the spirit. He was a humble man. He surrounded himself with godly people to hold him accountable. So he was indeed, although fallen, yes, sinful, yes, finite, an exemplary model to follow in terms of Christian living. And so that's what he's posing here, just as he said in other places, be a follower of me as I also am of Christ. He could say that, and that's why 15 times in verses 1 through 3, he refers to himself, I, 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 me, me, me. Also, in just a quick survey of the three verses there, he mentions mentions four spiritual gifts. Speaking in tongues first, that's verse 1. The gift of prophecy in verse 2. The gift of faith in verse 2. And then also the gift of giving in verse 3, which is a spiritual gift Paul talks about giving as a spiritual gift uh, in another epistle. So he uses uh, four spiritual gifts by way of illustration. He applies them to his own life. And he becomes the example and the illustration for them to follow. So let's go ahead and look at that uh this in this chapter, chapter thirteen, he mentions love nine times this is that's the theme you guys are all into just spiritual gifts and being showy and proud what you got and thinking about self and how God has gifted you and blessed you and they're looking down their nose at others whose gifts aren't as good or as impressive as the others, and he's trying to rein them in and give them a proper godly perspective, they've got the wrong focus, the wrong emphasis. It's not all about the kind of spiritual gift you have. Spiritual maturity is not gauged by the kind of gifts you have or how many spiritual gifts you have. Spiritual maturity is gauged by your spiritual fruit, not your spiritual gifts. That's one of his main points of emphasis that he's going to give us in chapter 13. And that comes from love. And so the Corinthians lacked a proper understanding of what biblical love was, how it should be the motivating factor in everything that they did. And so he mentions love nine times. Paul probably realizes that the Corinthians, being somewhat immature in the Christian faith, having been saved recently as pagans, maybe don't understand the depth and the breadth and the complexity and the the various, various nuances of what true biblical love is. And so that's why he has to delineate love very specifically. He starts talking about love, And then he stops and he defines love in verses 4 through 7 to make sure they know this is what I'm talking about. So he mentions love nine times. Before we get into it, I just want to give us some preliminary biblical Christian basic reminders of what biblical love is and what Paul's talking about before we launch in. We will get into details of defining love as Paul gives that when we get to verses 4 through 7. But up front, in a preliminary fashion, we do need to understand biblical love because uh, love is a very common topic talked about even in the world. We hear it all the time. It's probably the number one thing that we hear in the top 40 in terms of songs in the secular world, right? Everybody's writing about love. Love, love, love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been going on for 50 years. It's in movies. The theme, love, from a world's point of view. Uh, but the world's point of view and the secular point of view of love is totally different than biblical love, and what Paul is talking about here is God has defined it. So we need to make sure we have the proper starting point and biblical definition of what true love is. So uh, I'll do that before we actually jump into verse 1, 2, and 3. Just a couple of reminders about love. As I said, the, the word love is mentioned by Paul nine times in this chapter. Uh, the word he uses is agape, and that is a familiar word to many, agape love. Uh, Much has been written and said and taught about it. Um, We do know from the study of history and also from Greek that the word agape, which is a very common New Testament biblical word for love, uh, was not used uh, in a biblical manner at all prior to the New Testament. You'll find the word agape or agapao, the verb form, uh, occasionally in classical Greek, but very rarely the writings of whether it's uh, Aristotle and also in the time of his day in Plato and other Greek classics. But you won't find it very often, agape or agapao. That's the New Testament word for Greek. And when you do find it in classical secular Greek, it does not mean the same thing that it does in the Bible and in the New Testament. It means something very different. So that's why it's kind of dangerous when you want to do a word study from the New Testament. And, oh, this is Greek, and then let's go see what classical Greek says and inform our meaning here, and you will be led astray if you do that. Because agape, used in classical secular Greek, is totally different than the way Paul uses it, Jesus uses it, and the rest of the New Testament writers. As a matter of fact, with the coming of Christ, the New Testament, the work of Christ, the apostles, the word agape, which was somewhat of a kind of a familiar word in their vocabulary, it took on a totally new meaning with the Christian church. It was infused with entirely new definition, meaning, and nuance. But it is consistently used throughout the New Testament as A supernatural love. So here are some of the highlights of agape biblical love in the Bible that we need to know before we can fully understand Paul. So agape love, like I said, used very rarely uh, in secular Greek prior to the New Testament. The New Testament writers infused it with a, a new spiritual meaning that came from God. The word agape, this is very important, never refers to sexual love in the New Testament. And that is the primary way it is used in the secular world today. But in the New Testament, when you see agape love, it never refers to sexual love. It never refers to romantic love, ever. It never refers to primarily an emotion. And that's what we hear today, that love is primarily an emotion or a feeling. That is the antithesis of biblical love. So we've got to remove that from our mind. Can love involve emotion? Yes, but that's not its meaning. What does it mean? Um... 1 John 4. You got your Bible? Go to 1 John 4. I can't define it any better than God himself has through his word and through his scripture. Through the apostle John, friend of Jesus, apostle of Jesus for three years, wrote the gospel of John, Revelation, and the epistles of John. And in 1 John chapter 4, there is no better definition, exposition of love, save 1 Corinthians 13, than what God means by agape love. And so John says this in 1 John chapter 4, He's talking to Christians and he says, beloved, those who are loved by God, let us love one another. Here it is. For love is from God. Agape love is from God. True love comes from God himself. In other words, love is not inherent or inborn with us. Love, God's love is not natural to us. We can't conjure it up on our own. Its source and origin is divine and otherworldly. As a matter of fact, an unbeliever, a non-Christian, does not have the capacity to love with agape love. Some might find that startling or shocking, but that is exactly what John says, as well as other New Testament writers, including the Apostle Paul. Love is from God. Agape love is from God. Supernatural love is from God. There's a human kind of love by virtue of the fact that every human is made in God's image. God is a loving creator, and when He creates every human being, there's a reflection of his character in all human beings. That's called common grace and also uh, the attributes of God reflected in his creation by being made in his image. And so there is a human love that comes from God, but this is different. This is supernatural love, agape love. It is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God. If you love with this supernatural capacity, it is a sign that you are truly born of God, regenerated by God, a child of His, a supernatural creation in His image. And He gave you a supernatural love that you didn't come up with on your own. An unbeliever cannot love in this manner. This is loving at a higher plane. This is loving at a supernatural plane. Non Christians can't love it with this capacity because they don't have they don't possess. This supernatural love, it's a gift from God. Everyone who loves with agape love in a true manner is born of God and knows God personally. Verse 8, the one who does not love supernaturally with agape love, get this, doesn't know God. They're not a believer. They're not a Christian. They don't have this capacity. Romans five five says if you're a Christian, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. So the moment you became born again, God gave you His Holy Spirit to live in you and the Holy Spirit is the one that allows you to love with the supernatural love. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in you that imparts to you this supernatural agape love that unbelievers do not have. I remember when I got saved, that was one of the clearest things to me, that I have been changed and made a creature of God, because when I got saved instantaneously, I had a love in my heart for God and for people I had never experienced before. And it was a supernatural imparting and gift from God the moment I got saved. That's true of every Christian, and that's what John means here. The one who does not love doesn't know God, for God is love. That's amazing. God's love, that and the word is agape. God is love. His greatest, most blessed characteristic manifest to humanity that exemplifies His grace and His goodness is the attribute of love. It's actually almost more than an attribute. It's His very essence and character. God is love. And those who know him personally, who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been born again and have the Holy Spirit living in them, they also reflect this supernatural capacity to love that comes only from God. God is love. He says in verse 80, he repeats that in verse 16. God is love. God is more than love, but God is love. Scripture says God is a consuming fire. God is a spirit. So there's, his essence is uh, complex or has many attributes that are manifest, but love is basic. Verse 9, by this the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So the greatest example of agape love is when the Father gave Jesus Christ as Savior for the world. When Jesus, The greatest act of love was when Jesus willingly gave His life on the cross to be crucified and to absorb the fury and the wrath of the Father to be punished for our sin, to be our substitute, that we might be forgiven of that sin, adopted into God's family forever and eternally. That is the greatest act of love. Jesus manifests what true, biblical, supernatural agape love was like. And the greatest example was his death on the cross. Four sinners who didn't deserve God's love. We weren't worthy of God's love, yet it was bestowed on us Anyway. Uh, verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, loved us, we also should love one another. So in keeping with what John says about love, here's just a couple of other things to keep in mind about a preliminary definition of love that will complement Paul's definition. So supernatural agape love, it is, um, its origin is from God. It is not natural. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians 5. Remember that? Live uh, in obedience to the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And by the way, the first of the fruits of the Spirit is love. And that is not by accident. It is listed first because it is the greatest manifestation and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love. As a matter of fact, many commentators say that love is mentioned first and all those others are manifestations of that love. But it comes from the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't have this capacity to love at this supernatural level. You can only, at best, love at a human level which has its limits and is only possessed by the grace of God out of... Common grace. Um, other things about agape love. It is possessed and owned by every Christian. Because that's Romans five five. If you're a Christian, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart already past tense. It's already been done. So you don't need to technically pray. Dear God, give me more love. No, you don't need to pray that way. I understand we do pray that way sometimes. It's because you have all the love. I have all the love I need, actually, at my disposal. It's been shed abroad in my heart. The prayer should be, God... Uh, allow me, empower me, remind me, use your Holy Spirit to help me manifest and live out the love that you have already given me in Christ. That should be our prayer. God, soften my hardened, unforgiving heart that keeps me from loving the way that I should and that you have equipped me and gifted me to do. That needs to be our prayer. That's a more specific prayer. Every Christian has and possesses this supernatural agape love. Uh, this is, by the way, biblical love, agape love, is the basic mark of Christian, true Christianity. The most basic characteristic of a Christian that God requires of His children is love. Jesus said it a couple of times. One is John 13, 35. He washed the disciples' feet. His sinful disciples' feet, He was serving them as a slave, washing their feet, serving them selflessly, sacrificially. By the way, this was just after they were arguing among themselves at the Last Supper about which one of them was the greatest. And here's Jesus about to die on their behalf. And He gets down. He washes their feet. They didn't deserve it. They weren't worthy of it. They didn't earn it. And yet Jesus... Washes their feet as a servant, as an example of godly, supernatural, biblical, agape love. And when he was done, he said, the way that I have loved you, you need to love one another. And it's on a supernatural level. So it should be the most basic mark of a, a Christian. Uh, biblical love is action-oriented. It's Love is not love until it's put into an act, into action. God so loved the world. John 3.16. God so loved with a supernatural agape love. God so loved that he felt really good about it. No, God so loved the world that he had the warm fuzzies. God so loved the world... No, it's God so loved the world that he gave. It was manifest through action. It was manifest through service. It was manifest in a self-oriented... I mean, an other-oriented manner, a selfless manner, a sacrificial manner. That is the greatest example of biblical love. God himself giving His Son on our behalf. So love, biblical love, agape love, it is action-oriented. It is not an emotion. It is other-oriented. It is not consumed with self like the Corinthians were. That's why they need this reminder and rebuke. They were doing the exact opposite of love, preoccupied with self. Biblical love is sacrificial. Biblical love is a command and expected from God. Well, I don't feel like loving. Too bad. We often don't feel like loving. The reason we don't feel like loving is because we are naturally self-oriented, are we? We are naturally self-serving. Me, me, me. To obey biblical love is against our nature. That's why we need it to flow from God's power, from the Holy Spirit, in obedience to Him. It needs to be a conscious decision and choice of serving others. We are expecting nothing in return when we love someone. We aren't loving them and giving an act of service and love because they deserve it they are worthy of it, they earned it, or that we're looking for anything in return, it is a command. It's an expectation from God. Love one another. By the way, when we do love one another, it is the most basic expectation of a Christian because Jesus said in John thirteen thirty-five and John seventeen twenty-three, it is by our love towards one another, towards fellow Christians, towards fellow believers, that the world will know that we belong to Jesus Christ as his disciples. It is a living testimony. If we are divisive and at each other's throats, we are distorting that testimony. We are skewing the picture of Christ, undermining our very testimony to an onlooking world. Christ is the greatest model of agape love. Love is the most profound description of Christian character. It's the supreme characteristic that God requires of all of us. By the way, for us Christians, many of us can relate to this, it's easier to be orthodox than it is to love many times, isn't it? It's easier to have good theology than to practically work out this love many times among fellow believers, among family members. Man, I can get my theology down to a T. Ooh, isn't that nice? Perfecto. Living out love on a consistent basis the way God requires, it's a totally different story. It's a challenge. The church has struggled with this historically for 2,000 years. So it's easier to be orthodox than loving. It's also easier to be busy with Christian service in the church than to be manifesting love on a regular basis. It's a good challenge for us. That goes on all the time. It's happening in every church. It happens in our church. It's easier to be involved in Christian duty and Christian service than it is to manifest biblical love on a regular basis. Uh, one example would be when Jesus went to Martha and Mary's house. You know the story in Luke, Luke chapter 10. And he went there, apparently, to preach the word, to give a Bible study. And I don't know if he went into the living room, but Jesus begins to teach the word. His disciples are sitting at his feet listening, listening to the word of God, listening to Jesus teach, worshiping Jesus as the God-man in the home of Mary and Martha. Mary is obediently there, having the right priorities, knowing that the Master is in our home. He is teaching the Word. I must listen. I must adore. I must obey. And while she's in the living room listening to the Word of God taught by Jesus Himself, her sister Martha is in the kitchen, busy, 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 making dessert, doing the dishes, all, this, all by herself, for all the guests out there, so that when they're done with their Bible study, they can have their snacks. And she is getting frustrated because there's so many things to do and so many dishes and so many whatever else. And she's getting more and more frustrated. And, I, and then she starts thinking the wrong way about her sister Mary. I can't believe that Mary's not in here helping me serve and helping me prepare and helping me do the dishes and help. She's in there with Jesus. She's not doing anything. She is late. Like, who knows what was going through her mind? We know it was bad. Because she got to a point where finally she confronts Jesus after the Bible study or maybe she interrupted the Bible study. Do you not know? Jesus did. Uh Mary's not helping me and there and of of all my preparations and then Jesus just stopped her. Stop. Martha Martha. You are concerned about so many things. You are so preoccupied and anxious and uptight about your things, your agenda, and all that you are doing, all your good deeds, deeds of service, no doubt. But Martha didn't have a motive of love when she was doing those. She didn't have a love towards her sister Mary. She didn't have the right proper love towards God because if she did, she would have been in there listening to God in the flesh, Jesus herself. And Jesus told her that and he rebuked her. You are worried and consumed and anxious and uptight about your list, your agenda, your priorities. They are the wrong priorities. All these things don't matter. As a matter of fact, only one thing matters, Martha. Only one thing. And Mary's engaging in it and it is listening to the Word of God. And you know what? You can't take that away from her. No one can. That is a profound lesson. And Martha listened. And over the course of time, God changed her attitude, as we see reflected later in the, the Scriptures. But that is a perfect example of someone doing good, on the surface, good deeds towards other people, yet with the wrong attitude and probably the wrong motivation. And that is exactly what Paul wants to address in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's go ahead and go there and look at it. Doing spiritual gifts in and of themselves isn't necessarily virtuous if it's done with the wrong attitude, the wrong motive. It needs to be done with love. That's Paul's simple main point. Corinthians, you haven't been doing that. You need to be doing that. Let's go ahead and look at the three points Paul gives verses 1, 2, and 3, as I said on the back of your bulletin. Point number 1 in verse 1 regarding spiritual gifts. Empowered by love, Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy, gong, and clanging cymbal. Uh, number one here, I just call this empty words. The Corinthians had spiritual gifts. As a matter of fact, they were incredibly gifted with spiritual gifts, yet they lacked love. Their favorite spiritual gift was speaking in tongues. We know that Paul uh, made that clear in chapter 12. He makes it clear in chapter 14. Spiritual, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues was one of the favorites. It was showy. It was on display. It was amazing. Uh, it, it would nod people. They felt good about themselves by doing it, yet they were speaking in tongues, using that gift, not motivated by love, but to inflate their own ego. And Paul rebukes them for that. Basically, saying, I don't care if you have the gift of tongues. If you're doing it for the wrong reason, it is absolutely worthless. It's not beneficial, it is detrimental. You're using something that God has given you, you're using it for the wrong thing, and it is detrimental. It's like, uh, look at my golden plated faucet that I have on my sink. Oh, that is beautiful. Is that real gold? Oh, yes. 18 karat? No, 24. Oh, can, can I try? Can I turn it on? And then you turn it on, and just rusty, gross sludge comes out. What good is that? That is exactly what Paul's getting at here. Speaking in tongues is a gift of God, but if you're doing it with the wrong motive, it is detrimental. So he says, if I speak with tongues, and by the way, Paul 15 times says, I, 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 the Apostle Paul have the gift of tongues. He says that in chapter 14. I, the Apostle Paul, I have the gift of tongues. I speak in tongues more than any of you, but if I as an apostle do that with the wrong motivation, I don't do it out of love and service to others, is his argument here, then it is worthless. Speaking in tongues was a verbal gift. It was a gift of words that were spoken to the congregation publicly and out loud that you could hear. So it, it emanated a noise. And if you did speaking in tongues without the proper motive of love, then that noise turned from beauty and edification and blessing to what Paul says is a noisy gong, a clanging, cacophonous, dissonant, irritating, meaningless noise like a bronze gong that has no tune, that has no harmony or a clanging cymbal. Those are two similar instruments that just just like the three-year-old in the kitchen banging away on the pots and the pans and he's as happy as can be because he's making all kinds of noise. It's giving you a headache. So it's like these Corinthians, they're immature because they're doing their gifts without proper motive, which is love. So if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love when I'm exercising the gifts, I have become nothing but worthless, meaningless noise. By the way, he says the tongue of angels. I think that's a real language. Angels speak a real language. And Paul's being somewhat theoretical that actually he may be more than theoretical. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says Paul got caught up in the third heaven and he heard amazing, unspeakable things and dialogue that went on even among the angels. He heard angels speak. I don't know what language angels speak, but they speak a heavenly, angelic language. They communicate. They're intelligent beings, and that's what Paul's talking about. Revelation 14 says the same thing. John the Apostle heard angels from heaven speak the glories of God in their own angelic language. Whatever that language might be, that is what Paul is talking about. He was privy to and exposed to heavenly, angelic language at one time. That's why he's using himself as an example. You guys speak in tongues of men. I speak in tongues like you guys. And I've heard angels speak in their own language as well. I am the epitome of this gift. Or at least the exposure to it. Yet, even if I as an apostle do it without love, it is meaningless. It is destructive noise. So... If you don't use your spiritual gifts and your speaking gifts with love, it is worthless. Empty words. Uh, the second point in verse 2, worthless knowledge. Empty words, worthless knowledge. The other spiritual gift that the many of the Corinthians prized was prophecy, another speaking, showy gift. This one has to do with a, a gift of the mind, not the mouth. The gift of knowledge. By the way, in verse 2 it says, "And I, if I have the gift of prophecy, and Paul did... I am a prophet. He was an apostle. So again, I think he's referring to himself. And then he gives a definition of what prophecy is. Prophecy that literally knows all mysteries and knows all knowledge. So knowing all mysteries and knowing all knowledge aren't separate gifts. That's the definition of the gift of prophecy. It is divine revelation. It's revelation that God gave to the prophet here, the apostle Paul. Mysteries are things that only God knows, and when he chooses to reveal them to his people, then they know them. But mystery is divine knowledge that we can't come to know on a human basis. It comes only from God's revelation. And so Paul says, once again, if I as an apostle who have the gift of prophecy and I'm able to discern all mysteries that God reveals and even all knowledge that God has to reveal, and even if I have the gift of faith, which was a supernatural, at times a supernatural capacity to believe God for amazing miracles... So as to remove mountains, that was an idiom, meaning to do something impossible that only God could do, and that was a spiritual gift, and the Apostle Paul probably had that gift because he did the impossible in the name and the power of God, but he says, if I do these things, yet I do not have love, then he says, I am nothing, I am nothing. That is emphatic, and by the way, it's not my spiritual gift amounts to nothing, I am nothing. It refers to his very character. That's how important this is. So if I speak for God and it is without love, meaningless. If I know things for God and reveal them and teach them to others, yet don't have love, I am nothing. And then number three, he talks about fruitless deeds. So things that we say, things that we know, things that we do as Christians, yet doing it without love amounts to Nothing. Verse 3. And if I give all my possessions... By the way, giving was a spiritual gift. Now, if I give all my possessions... Not just giving a little bit, giving all my possessions. Giving to the extreme. And some people do this. Give to the extreme. They take vows of poverty and they give everything away. Many times in, in different religions of the world do this. And they supposedly are the epitome of what is religious and... What pleases God. Many people in false religions take vows of poverty or give continually and continually and continually to earn favor with God. They think that by virtue of their giving, doing their good deeds, they can earn God's favor. They can earn God's forgiveness. This is called self-righteousness. This is man-made religion. It is despised by God. It's the epitome of what makes a Pharisee a Pharisee in Luke 18. The Pharisee who was arrogant and rejected by God, according to Jesus, boasted before God and everybody publicly who heard him pray. He said, I tithe from, not tithe just 10%, I tithe from all that I get. What he was saying, I give from everything that I get. God, you should be thankful for me, such a generous giver. Talk about arrogant. So it is possible to do this people to give all of their possessions, thinking that they are religious just by virtue of their giving. One of the five pillars of Islam, which is a false religion, one of the five pillars of Islam, is alms giving, giving a minimum of two point five percent to the needy and to the poor. Yet we would say they do it without biblical love. it amounts to Nothing. That is Paul's argument here. And if I give all my possessions... And by the way, Paul was very giving. He was very sacrificial. As a matter of fact, he gave to the Corinthians. What did he give them? He gave them the Word of God without charge. Again, he's referring to himself. If I gave all my possessions, I give to you. I serve you, Corinthians. I gave you everything I had. I put my life on the line for the church. And even if I give all these things... And if I deliver my body even to the point of death by being burned, to be religious, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely. This is a rebuke that the church needs today in light of the pseudo-counterfeit gospel called the social gospel that is rampant around the world and has trickled into churches all over America and all over the world do good or Christianity. That however many deeds are done and good deeds are done is the equivalent and synonymous with true biblical Christianity. It's not. It is a counterfeit gospel. It's a counterfeit Christianity. The secular world does this. They don't even know God. Many of them don't even want to be affiliated with God. yet. They do amazing things in terms of meeting needs in charitable organizations to give to others, to give to the needy. Many times God uses that. Again, that's a virtue and an outpouring, sometimes of common grace, to help humanity. But sometimes it's done in false religions to earn God's favor. And it's done without the motive of biblical love. A lack of love, true love for God, and a lack of a proper love towards other people. Many times it is self-serving. Paul says this should have no place whatsoever in Christian service, Christian spiritual gifts or Christian interactions in the church. It's a solid rebuke. Paul's very wise, though, in he, what he's doing here. Maybe maybe it's veiled and they don't even realize it. Paul's talking about himself. He mentions himself 15 times. If I did this, but I did it without love, I am worthless. I am worthless. I am nothing. But what he's really doing, he's rebuking the Corinthians. But he's using himself as an example. I think, Paul, he was, he was wise, but also a gracious pastor. He not want to be pointing the finger the whole time and totally discouraging them. He wants to teach them an important truth, but in a way that they can assimilate it and understand it and remind them and let them know, I'm Paul, I'm a sinner too. I wrote Romans 7, 14 through 25. I'm a wretched man as well. I need this uh, exhortation just as much as you do. Paul was prone to this. He was vulnerable to this. Many times Paul maybe struggled with pride, arrogance and that's why god had to humble him and even at a very severe level he says in second corinthians to keep him humble in light of his giftedness that god had blessed him with so this is a lesson that we can all take so we need to be reminded practical way just we need to examine our own hearts our own lives starting with our own individual christian service at the church what is my ministry at the church what do i do uh i set up tables in the morning before church I tear things down at the end of church. I teach a Sunday school class. I take attendance. I do music. I do whatever is. Think of your own spiritual service at the church and then ask yourself and lay before God in an ongoing manner. God, uh, examine my heart. Reveal if I am being prideful or arrogant in my service. Am I doing it with the proper motive? And God, I need your help because I need to be doing this in love, the love that you have given me through the Spirit who dwells in me. And God, remind me of the the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as the model of love. Total, selfless service, sacrificially towards others. I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Paul. And I fail and I fall short. God, you've got to help me. And God, help me to be open to those around me who speak into my ears, reminding me when I am not, when I am not loving. And help me to be humble. Help me to be teachable. You know, God's going to answer that prayer. He's going to honor that prayer. And he's going to answer that prayer by changing you and changing me and how we think and how we live and how we view service that honors God and blesses the people in our church. So God, help us to continue serving and loving Jesus with biblical love as our greatest driving passion and motive with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. Again, our time of corporate worship, we do thank You for Your Word, Scripture. We thank You for preserving it with the Holy Spirit over thousands of years, knowing that You would even want to use it today to to teach us, to speak to us through His truth. Thank You for the reminder about the basic virtue of Christian love. God, thank You for imparting supernatural love to us through the Holy Spirit that lives in us as a result of believing in the gospel, of being born again. And God, um, we are reminded we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. It was a gracious initiative on your part, made possible by the perfect life of Jesus, His sacrificial death, His powerful resurrection, His ongoing role as high priest, His continual pursuit of us as a seeking Savior. Help us emulate Paul's model that he exhorted the Corinthians with so that Grace Bible Fellowship, our local fellowship, would be a church that pursues ministry with a heart of love flowing directly from you. God, keep us on the straight and narrow. Humble us and teach us where we need to be reigned in and humbled. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.